G'day, Dominic Barfield here, and this is the RVC Clinical Podcast. Thank you for listening, and thank you for subscribing on your smartphone or generic fruit-based device. Really grateful for you taking the time to download and listen to this RVC podcast. And we don't ask for anything in return, but would really be incredibly grateful if you could pop down Apple Podcasts or iTunes and leave us a review. Um, I know that some people might have to work out actually how to do that, but it is it is possible. And uh, if you leave us a five star review, that would be that would be great. Um, I'm sure there's other reviews that are available, but uh, but a five star one would be great. We're actually on on Acast now as as well. Finally, so if you have a, an Android phone, then uh, then just download Acast, and you can you can find us on that app as well. So uh, um, so please do leave us a review. So today we're going to talk to Dr. Roseanne Jepson, um, who's one of our senior lecturers here in internal medicine. Um, she's just had a, a busy clinical day, so we thought we'll uh, we'll uh, throw in some uh, some questions uh, to her. Um, and uh, and when I, when I, uh, I asked her to come and join us back on the pod, I was thinking about talking about um, uh, STMA and what's it all about. So thank you, Roseanne, for coming back onto the pod. Thank you, Tom. Um, yes, uh, SDMA. So it's a, a marker um, of renal function, which has been available to most of us now for um, a, a little while, um, certainly well over a year, 18 months probably now. Um, and SDMA stands for symmetric di- dimethyl arginine. So um and, and in terms of being a marker of renal function, I guess essentially what we're saying is that this is something that we can measure um, similar to the way that we measure creatinine concentrations, or we have done for many, many decades, um, that it's going to give us some information about glomerular filtration rates um, in our patients for sure. And so um, it's been recently made available. It's pretty, I suppose, heavily, heavily marketed. Or there's, there's a, a um, it seems a, a surge in interest, even, even for for an outsider like me in in, in medicine. So, so um, when do you, you know, what, what, when should people be using this marker? Do you, do you think? That's that's a really good question. I guess one of the reasons I think that this marker was originally developed is because we've recognised um, over the past um, five ten years that. Um, when we diagnose kidney disease, and I guess here I'm talking specifically about chronic kidney disease in both cats and dogs, um, when we've used our traditional markers, so urea and creatinine uh, together with our urine concentrating ability and urine-specific gravities, um, we don't actually detect that dogs and cats become azotemic until they've lost quite a lot of their renal function. So many people out there will have heard um, uh, people saying you have to have lost 75% of your functional renal mass before um, creatinine values start to become increased. And so there's been this sort of holy grail search for markers that are going to tell us um, a little bit earlier that actually we need to be worried about the kidneys. Um, and I think this is obviously partly where this um, molecule was um, identified and why it has been marketed so so heavily because there's been some promise that it's going to be able to help us detect patients um, that may be either at risk of having kidney disease uh, or have kidney disease at a much earlier time point. And I guess one of the reasons that we're really interested in making that early detection is because um, later on in the disease there's a, a limited capacity for us to be able to have an impact on that disease progression whereas the earlier we can actually make that diagnosis as clinicians it does mean the earlier we might be able to try and um, not reverse what's already happened but try to prevent the progression that we know will happen in these dogs and cats that develop kidney disease. 
Um, and so SDMA, uh, I guess, was um, originally identified almost um, almost by accident, I think I would say, because a, a lot of the very early literature um, actually is looking at the, its stereoisomer ADMA, so asymmetric dimethylarginine, which was associated with a number of different cardiovascular conditions. And because um, the typical methods for um, measuring ADMA were mass spectrometry-based techniques, people recognised SDMA as well. And so actually, um, it was almost by fluke, I think, really, that this association between um, uh, GFR or renal function and SDMA was originally identified um, a number of years ago now. Um, and, and that was sort of picked up on and it was recognised that SDMA um, undergoes mainly excretion by the kidney, which therefore makes it an ideal marker. Um, and so I think that's how um, it was originally um, developed and commercialised. And now they're no longer using the mass spectrometry-based techniques, but they have some um, high-speed, high-throughput um, lab-based techniques that are going to be useful on a clinical basis to actually measure SDMA. And so, and so, Roseanne, thank you for that uh, that incredibly uh, good synopsis about the, about the whole uh, creation um, or, or utilization of SDMA. So, so what, what what patients do you think people should um, use it in as a as a biomarker? So I think I think where we're seeing the most utility for SDMA is going to be um, patients where you have an index of suspicion for underlying renal disease, um, but where perhaps the creatinine is still within the reference interval from your diagnostic lab. But maybe these patients have some other um, clinical parameters that make you think you might be worried about early kidney disease. So those would be the patients where I would uh, consider running an SDMA. You could also consider running an actual GFR measurement for example by IAHEX or clearance um, but an SDMA at that point would certainly be of interest if it was elevated in those patients the current recommendation would be to document that it's elevated on a second occasion as well because at the moment whilst we have decades of experience using creatinine we don't as clinicians have that much experience using SDMA and so if we're going to try and make a diagnosis outside of our usual laboratory diagnostics um, it's good to be able to document that that SDMA is persistently high before we're relying just on a single value. So sorry, would those two separate occasions be in a month time period? Yeah, or? something like that. Yeah, so maybe um, just as you would if you were going to stage a patient with kidney disease. So maybe you've you know you've run your baseline parameters, you've got your SDMA um, reading, and it's come back elevated. My recommendation would probably then be in a three to four weeks time to actually repeat that um, SDMA value together with a urine specific gravity again at this at the same time as you're getting your SDMA value to. See see whether it's remained persistently high and if it has then that probably does indicate that that patient has early um, kidney disease even though the creatinine may be within reference interval um, if it's back down into the normal reference interval um, then I think we have to um, probably monitor that patient maybe a little bit more closely so maybe that's a patient you might recommend a three or six monthly checkup on but if it's only a one-off reading um, and it's only marginally elevated then I think we have to um, consider that there is some variability that's going to occur in any marker and that one-off reading might not be of importance. Excellent. 
Um, I guess I just wanted to add there that the other um, really important time um, when SDMA may be of benefit is in patients that are cachexic or have got quite marked sarcopenia. Um, and uh, this, I guess, plays more into the older cat population, um, where we typically see older cats where we know they're at risk of chronic kidney disease. Um, but one of the problems that we've had for a long time, obviously, with creatinine is that it's generated from body muscle. So creatinine comes from creatine kinase. Um, and so if you have a low body condition and you have um, a limited muscle resource, you're not going to be generating as much creatinine and so you can get this sort of false reduction in creatinine um, as a renal marker. And this is an area where certainly there's been a lot of interest in SDMA potentially outperforming um, creatinine um, because SDMA is produced in every body cell um, and is not dependent on body muscle. So for any patients that are cachexic for any reason, um, then actually SDMA might give you a better indication of, of renal function in those patients. That definitely explains one of the questions I had because I, uh, ah. I had a look at that paper and I thought, oh, that's interesting. Yes. And to, to, I suppose the other thing is that we, we've got some guidelines in place, haven't we, for what we think is the best way to approach uh, cats and dogs with um, certain stages of, of renal disease. But if we're looking at these patients Early, earlier in the course yeah. do, do we know what we're meant to do with them no um that's uh, again a very good question and, and the short answer is we don't know what we should do with those patients at this point in time um in terms of any therapeutic um changes that we should make to the management of those patients i think clinically we're very happy that for dogs and cats that are in iris stage two three or four chronic kidney disease that we should think about instituting a renal diet we should be obviously checking their blood pressure and all of the other um, great recommendations that we have um, but when we've if we look at the um, historical literature looking at the data that supports those interventions then they're all using cats and dogs that have iris stage 2 or above chronic kidney disease. So the studies to look at um dietary change for example have actually just never been performed um, in cats or dogs with iris stage one kidney disease so we actually don't know whether if we start a kidney diet when we make a diagnosis of iris stage one ckd whether that is good for the cat whether it's going to be beneficial whether it's going to improve survival whether it's going to change um, progression of disease or not and in, in fact uh, you know we have some very early preliminary data that actually suggests that maybe not all of those cats do need the level of um, dietary phosphate restriction that would be in a typical renal diet. So I guess what I can say is that there are studies ongoing at the moment to try and address those questions and I guess it's only with the release of markers like SDMA that we've had the opportunity to make this earlier diagnosis and what we're really needing now is that evidence base to say well you know should what diet should we start should it be a renal diet are we should we be doing something else in terms of their dietary management at that point in time 
I think what we probably would all as clinicians agree on, however, is that we should still be checking blood pressure and we should certainly always be managing hypertension, even in the iris stage one um, patients. And we should also be checking for proteinuria. And if you identify proteinuria, then we should certainly be treating that. Um, but as to what we should recommend for um, uh, cats which are found to have consecutively high SDMA, but everything else is clinically um, normal in those cats then I think right now it's um, improved monitoring um, and I certainly don't make recommendations for changing diets in those cats and dogs yet. So so you mentioned there are some studies um, trying to look at that at the the moment are they? absolutely. So so restricting, so going on to a a renal diet as it were, um, it's not a geriatric diet is it? So we'll have uh, other 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 Uh, I suppose, issues with it. Yeah, no, definitely. So um, the traditional renal diets are phosphate restricted um, and they have lower phosphate by restricting um, protein content. The protein quality is very high, but the protein content is reduced. But those diets are also um, typically supplemented in potassium. They're typically supplemented in essential fatty acids. Um, They tend to be not sodium restricted, but they're certainly not high sodium diets and they're also typically slightly alkaline alkalinizing as well so there are many properties that actually make up a commercial renal diet um, and I think one of the um, questions that we have at the moment is how much phosphate restriction would be appropriate for these very early stage cats um, because some of these cats do develop a higher calcium level so a hypercalcemia um, when they're transitioned to um, uh, one of the sort of commercially available phosphate restricted diets and that may be detrimental so um, I guess the work that we have ongoing at the moment is really to look at um, the markers that we have that tell us about um, phosphorus homeostasis and what happens in these early stage cats when we try to use different types of of diet hoping that we're going to be able to then make recommendations in the future for actually what we should be doing in these cats so um, this is information that hopefully you know will be out there in the next couple of years but these studies take time because um, the progression of kidney disease particularly in cats is relatively slow uh, hopefully and that's a good thing Um, but particularly when we pick these cats up at an early time point actually some of these cats are going to live for six seven eight possibly more than that years Um, and so if you take that group of cats survival is no longer necessarily a useful outcome in those studies we need to look at other markers that tell us whether we're doing the right thing by um, putting them onto kidney diets at that point. I suppose it's uh, it's it's really interesting, isn't it? So we so we've got this marker, which is which is great that helps us identify something a disease process that we know has uh, consequences yep. earlier, but we we don't know really what to what to do with that information yet, apart from just that highlights the fact that something is is going on. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it does it does give us the opportunity to be more aware of those patients for sure, um, and I think on the whole that's a good thing um, because it enables us to then monitor and maybe those cats we then pick up at an earlier time point that they have flipped over into that iris stage two cats that we would want to start um, renal diet for so it gives us the opportunity to pick that up um, possibly earlier than we would have done if they'd only been coming in for 
check up every one two years um, so so I think in terms of monitoring it it helps us um, there will be some clients obviously who um, don't wish to take up that monitoring opportunity and I think on the whole that's fine as long as we remember that if they become unwell we should probably think it has their kidney disease progressed at that point um, mm. yeah I, the other time when I think it, it can be useful is in the later stages of kidney disease where we do have poor muscle condition mm. some of those cats we might now classify at the stage higher than they would have been previously so if you have an Irish stage 2 kidney disease cat which has very poor body condition but has a markedly elevated SDMA then it may be that we say well actually we're going to put this cat into Irish stage 3 and, it, and if, if listeners are interested they can go to the Irish website and there is um, sort of guidelines on the cut points that are currently recommended to do this and then then maybe you're going to make recommendations for iris stage three rather than iris stage two and the same would be true when we go stage three to stage four so so i think there are indications for use in the later stages what i would say though is that Clinically, I think because we've all had a lot of experience with creatinine, most of us, when we look at those patients, we're already making that mental adjustment in our heads that the patient in front of me has quite a poor body condition, its muscle mass is reduced... I've got a creatinine, let's say, of 280. Actually, I think if this patient's body muscle was normal it would be 350. So whilst we haven't had those values, we've been making those clinical judgments in our head and making a clinical interpretation based on our whole physical exam and the information we've had about those patients. It's almost as if we need to create a, uh, a database of all the SDMA positive or, or if they have a value greater than 14 to see, you know, track these 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 cats and yeah. see what's what's going on. Definitely. And I, I mean, I would believe that the people who are marketing this product certainly have that data. Um, I think what as clinical researchers we can bring to this, however, is um, the clinical background to those cases. And so certainly through our geriatric research clinics, um, we are tracking SDMA in all of our older cats and that's something that we're going to be very interested in looking at um, to see how much it helps us identify those cats and sort of which ones are falling into the high SDMA normal creatinine versus having both elevated SDMA and creatinine values. So um, I think it's like whenever a new marker is released, there's a certain amount of preliminary work that goes into getting that product to market and then there's a whole wealth of knowledge that develops in the 10, 20, 30 years afterwards as people get used to using it and they realise that there are various idiosyncrasies relating to that particular marker that we perhaps weren't aware of when it was first marketed to us. So, yeah. and, and I suppose as, as uh, biomarkers go of, of renal function, there are a, a, a lot that uh, are, are possibilities, right? So this yeah. is one that's uh, a, a, a bit more rigorous than, than others to to get as far as it has. Yes. I mean, this is this is to be fair the first alternative renal marker, I guess, that has made it to um, to market um, and just has left the research bench, if you like. Um, and I think most of us that work in this field feel that there's probably never going to be that one biomarker that tells us everything. But uh, what I would anticipate will happen is that we 
gather a bigger and bigger panel of markers that um, used together give us more information um, because I think we're probably looking at a completely different panel of biomarkers if we're interested for example in acute kidney injury. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and uh, I was just I was just wondering when I was actually having a look at the RS guidelines. Is there a, a, a consensus of a of a of a group of uh, renal interested uh, uh, veterinarians throughout the world? Is that is that the way it works? <laughs> Yes, Dom, um, it does. So in general, uh, Iris, I mean, it was set up, um, well, back in the 1990s now, um, and it's a panel of um, individuals who are considered to be specialists in the field of nephrology. And there is representation from um, many countries worldwide, um, including the, the UK. Um, and so we have two representatives at the Royal Veterinary College, Professor Hattie Syme and Professor Jonathan Elliott, who both sit on the IRIS panel. Um, and they meet um, on an annual basis um, and their goal is to try and promote um, uh, good uh, medicine for nephrologists around the world essentially um, with a, a backed up by the evidence base that is available at the moment um, but also trying to come up with guidelines that are going to be useful for everybody so not just specialists but things that can be applied directly in general practice which I think is fundamentally very important because these are typically cases that are being seen every day um yeah but i think it's great to have, have uh, guidelines i mean i, I suppose there's, there's always uh, um a difference of opinion i know amongst all, all circles but but at least as a as a starting point it's great and it's like the one um, um, body of uh, um I, I suppose uh, in in the in the veterinary field or in the small animal veterinary field there's only you know this interest group around kidneys it doesn't necessarily the same thing exists for liver disease or, uh, or or necessarily lung disease to the yeah. same extent no i guess i think this must have been one of the first that was created i think that for the other groups they're definitely there um but i think iris is, and the iris staging system is certainly one of the first um to sort of hit the ground and to become fairly well established internationally um cardiology obviously also have had their staging systems for some time now um and obviously that's being very widely used and accepted but it's true you get a group of specialists in a room and getting them to any form of consensus is quite an achievement well getting them in the room in the first the place room, is, yes. is, is, is difficult in the first place so um so i suppose you would you'd think that there'll be uh, you know an increasing amount of uh, of literature coming out about what we what we need to do with stma definitely uh, positive patients um uh, or have a value that's greater than 14 is that, is that right yes that's that's the upper end of the reference interval at, at the moment yes i think there's going to be um uh, a wealth of literature that does materialize it's already starting to appear in abstract form at some of the um conferences um so we're certainly seeing a, a street steady stream of um people who've got preliminary data that's being presented and that will gradually work its way through to um publications which will then um, inform um, everybody internationally in terms of what we sh should be doing. And I think there certainly are still some questions remaining about SDMA. So um, it's, a, it's a molecule that's produced in every 
nucleated cell in the body. And so there have been, um, I guess there are a number of questions still around what role, for example, neoplasia may play on SDMA value. So if we have um, cancer where we have a lot of rapidly dividing cells, for example, what happens to SDMA in, in those patients? And do we still rely on the SDMA values that we have there? Um, another situation that I know is being explored currently is um, relation with thyroid function. So we know that it performs reasonably well, but we, we know already with creatinine that there are issues in using that as a marker of renal function in cats that are hyperthyroid. Um, and I think there's still some sort of fine tuning and nitty gritty of information that we need to get to about what happens to SDMA in those situations as well. And there will be others too. And it's, it's just, um, uh, an experience that we all need to go through with new markers in terms of fully understanding how they're going to change with a variety of different disease conditions and it's not that the markers that we have at the moment aren't influenced by other underlying disease conditions it's just that we've used them for years and we've kind of learned what their nuances are and so we feel more confident interpreting them um, and the same will happen with other markers like SDMA but it takes a bit of time for that information to come out. Absolutely so I suppose that the, the future is bright with in, in, in relation to what it what it could show us or, or yep. at least we, we hope that but obviously there's going to be things that we need to learn about uh, how to use it and where it can, can maybe mislead us to or, yeah. or, or take us a bit down the down the wrong path. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. It's, it's, it's quite, I was thinking it, it's, it might be a bit difficult when you're uh, in practice to say, I want to do this test, but I'm, you know, but it might not, you know, we don't know what to do with that result. Like it's probably quite a difficult thing to, 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 to sell at the, at the moment, I'd, ima- I'd imagine. Yes. So, I mean, I sus- my understanding is that at the moment it's obviously coming on the panel, um, the biochemical panel that's being marketed by the company that's um, obviously um, sort of selling the test. And so it's been added as part of a standard profile. So I think, um, you know, a lot of people are experiencing and finding um, that they've got the SDMA value on their lab data. Um, I would imagine that there's relatively few people requesting it as an independent test um, I think the situation where people are requesting it as an independent test will be for those cases which maybe are polyuric polydipsic um, where there's an index of suspicion that this could be renal but the creatinine has come back within reference interval or maybe that patient has poor body condition for another reason and people are thinking well, maybe SDMA actually will give me that confirmation and that confidence that this patient does have early stage kidney disease, even though I can't detect it, because maybe maybe its urine concentrating ability is um, not as great as we might have expected for the hydration status that the patient has presented with, for example. Or maybe you've got some subtle changes on your um, abdominal ultrasound within the kidneys. Um, and so then that, that test is something that you might request independently but my my feeling is that at the moment most people are using it partly because it's coming on um, the general health profile 
Which is probably a good way so we can actually begin to understand what, what, it, what it means. Absolutely. I think, you know, we have to we have to see it and we have to compare it to the markers that we're more used to um, using. We have to identify when it's high. What is it about those patients that's different? Um, maybe it does spur us on to do further investigations in those patients. And through that iteration, we will learn exactly what it does mean to us and where the benefits of using it lie. Um, and if we don't look at it in that way then then you know we'll continue as we are with the status quo which has served us well but it's not necessarily looking to the future well thank you very much Rosanne I think it's a, a, a great uh, overview of SMA and and uh, and how to how to use it in practice and, and looking forward to the to the future of what we can what we can do with that and, uh, and maybe help uh, um, animals and in, in the long run so many thanks Sorry. again for your time no problem not at all thank you Dom and uh, thank you for listening and thank you for uh, um, subscribing and downloading this podcast. We're really grateful for your time as well to, uh, to, to do that, to download and, and, uh, and listen to this podcast. But if you have any, any, uh, any questions, and don't forget, um, we'll, have a, we'll play some uh, show notes on the RVC pages. If you just type in RVC Clinical Podcast into your search engine, it should be top of the tree. If you have any comments or suggestions on this podcast, please get in touch. So you can either email me at thebarfield at rvc.ac.uk or tweet at Don Barfield. Until next time, bye-bye.